0: Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you guys for being here this morning um, at Redemption Church. My name is Reggie and uh, one of the pastors here at Redemption. And there's nobody sitting in the middle section. So if I start preaching like this, wait, Ben's moving over. Thank you, man. There's one person in the middle section. Um, thank you for making it more awkward. Um, but anyway, uh, this morning we're going to be continuing. Thank you, Caleb, too. Um, This morning we're going to be continuing on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, very specifically looking at some uh, verses from Matthew chapter 7. And so we'll start that up in just a second. But as we begin, um, let me pray for us. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that we've had an opportunity to sing together, to pray together, hopefully to worship and encounter you in this place. And God, even now, as we begin to look at your word and see what you would have for us this morning, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to draw us close to you. Um, God, as I stand on the stage and talk for the next little while here, God, I I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, I I know that your words are of utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that we would hear your words. I pray that we would hear... um, your scripture this morning, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. God, I pray that you would use me simply as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of love in the gospel, that Jesus would be lifted high, that we might be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So let me ask you a question this morning as we get started. Has there ever been a time in your life, and specifically um, as you've been around church, or the Christian faith maybe, where you've seen someone walk away from the Christian faith. Someone who by all appearances at some point in their life was a follower of Jesus, but who decided they were no longer going to be that very thing. Uh, I've seen it happen a few times in my life, or what would appear to be somebody walking away from the faith. Um, A couple of times come to mind when I was in when I was young, a young teenager, maybe not even yet a teenager, uh, I was going to a church with my family out in Modoc, South Carolina, which is up at the lake. And there was this, there was this teenage guy there who was very devout or seemed to be very devout and uh, was constantly um, talking about Scripture and constantly studying and constantly writing things down, constantly telling everybody how he was following Scripture. Uh, how he was applying it in the context of his time in high school, just different stuff like this. And, and then one day he just decided, this isn't for me anymore. And so he had all this knowledge, but he just decided he was no longer a Christian. Um, several years ago when we started this church, during our first year of existence, there was a young man that was coming here, and he had, been, he had grown up in youth groups, grown up in church, was a part of a college ministry that I was a part of for a little while, and um, he, he asked me to go to coffee with him one night and we met up at Metro Coffee House right up the road. And um, he proceeded to lay out to me all the things that were going on in his life and some sin that he was involved in and how he, he made the statement, it was really awkward, he made the statement, uh, I'm not willing to give up this sin. So that means that Jesus wants me to no longer be a Christian. So I'm no longer going to be a Christian so that I continue to do this sin that I'm caught up in. And he decided he was no longer a follower of Christ, and and he walked away from the faith. It was an interesting conversation. I'll come back to this in a minute, but turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7. And let's look at verses 13 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And then while I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In all actuality, when I read that passage and I take it for what Jesus is saying, it's kind of frightening, right? It's kind of scary. And it it invokes a strong response within within me, and and it probably should, because Jesus is talking about destruction and fire and people departing from him. Eternally. And we could spend lots and lots and lots of time talking about the realities of what it means to be separated from Christ eternally. And so I don't want to downplay or discount what Jesus says here. At the same time, I want to make sure that with this passage we we focus on the right things in the context of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. But suffice it to say, as we get started, we have to acknowledge after reading this passage, that apart from a real relationship with Christ, there are eternal consequences for not being involved in that relationship. And those consequences are frightening. And so as we dive into this passage, it's important that we understand, uh, like I said, this very strong passage from Jesus, this very strong part of the Sermon on the Mount and in light of the context, the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in a very real way, is teaching about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. He's teaching about what God's kingdom looks like, how things um, look in God's kingdom, the kingdom that he is initiating. And he's warning against our tendencies to make things about us, to shrink the kingdom of God down to our priorities, to be focused on us. We talked about it last week, God's kingdom is a kingdom whereby our relationship with Christ should impact every area of our life. Our relationships with others, our prayer life, anything that we do on a daily basis, God intends that our relationship with Him affects those things. And so God's kingdom is a kingdom that's focused not on us, but on Him instead. And so we have to recognize ultimately that God is just and God will ultimately judge the world according to His standards. That's part of what we see in this passage. But because of Jesus... We can have the righteousness of Christ applied to us so that when God looks at us, God sees the righteousness of Christ instead, right? We, we call that the double cure. Jesus was our sacrifice on the cross and he also lived a perfect life that is imparted to us and so that when God looks at us, he can see Christ's righteousness. And so when we come to this passage at the end of chapter 7, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 13 through the end of the passage is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll finish up with the last few verses next Sunday. And Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in a pretty typical Jewish way of teaching. You see it throughout Scripture um, where there's a contrast of two things, right? Uh, You see it in Moses right before Moses is getting the children of Israel ready to go into the promised land. Moses talks about the blessing and the curse. You see it in other places throughout the Old Testament, other places throughout the New Testament. But Jesus sort of uses the same teaching tool here. And it's this teaching tool of of laying out two ways or two things. And so in this passage that we just read, there's two roads and there's two gates. There are two kinds of animals. There are sheep and wolves there's two kinds of trees healthy trees and diseased trees there's two kinds of fruit good fruit and bad fruit there's two kinds of people those who spend an eternity with jesus and those whom jesus says depart from me i never knew you and next week in the final passage two kinds of foundations upon which to build your house and jesus is laying out all these things and he lays out one is good and one is bad. One is indicative of people in his kingdom, and one is not. One is indicative of what true righteousness looks like, and one is not. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and like I said, I want to make sure we have the whole context here as we deal with this passage. If we go all the way back to Matthew 5.20, which we looked at probably months ago, I don't even know how long ago that was, um, because it seems like we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for a very long time now. If we go back all the way to 520, Jesus says, except your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you remember with me, the Pharisees were this group of very religious, very fervent, very moral Jewish teachers and scholars and scribes that existed during the time of Jesus. And essentially what they had done is they had created this formula, this method, this list of ways to honor God by following um, the law of the Old Testament. Their righteousness was based on their doing certain things in certain ways in order to be obedient. On the outside, they did what they were supposed to do, but Jesus called them whitewashed tombs because even though externally they looked righteous, internally... What they were doing were things that were based on human wisdom and human strength and human capability. And so last week we talked about how true righteousness only ever begins when we come to the end of ourselves and we turn to Jesus. And so Jesus at the end of Matthew 7, tying it all the way back to Matthew 5, is continuing to push us toward true righteousness with some pretty strong words about His kingdom something else I said last week, and just a reminder for those of you who may not have been here, um, is the gospel principle that being precedes doing. And so it would be an easy mistake for us to come to the passage of Matthew chapter 7 and walk away like the Pharisees and hear what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 7 and think that Jesus is telling us, is simply talking about a way to live, that the narrow road is really about doing things a certain way and And being obedient externally. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus is merely giving us principles to follow and things to do in order to bear good fruit. And that's not the case at all, right? That isn't what Jesus is doing at all. Bearing fruit and going through the narrow gate and being a healthy tree and all those things are really about something internal. They're really about our identity, about whose we are, and about the condition of our heart. I'll play this out, so stick with me. But let me lay out a few things about this passage, things that I think we need to see very clearly within the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount, but specifically what Jesus is talking about here. Verses 13 and 14, let me read them again. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In these two verses, narrow gate, talking about a narrow gate, talking about the road. I think Jesus gives us a very vivid picture of what I'll call the narrowness of Christianity. How many of you have ever had to park your car or had someone park their car so close to your car that you couldn't open the door to get out? Have you ever been in that situation? Wes raised his hand. Thank you, Wes. I'm reminded of the movie The Heat with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. You know this movie? Where she has to park too close and climb through another car to get out of a cop car parked next to her, or... How many of you have ever locked yourself out of your house and had to squeeze in through a window? Have you been there? Have you Anybody had to do that? I'm reminded of um, this place between Greenville and Brevard, North Carolina. It's called Caesar's Head State Park. Um, My wife and I, we like to go to Brevard every year, take the girls up to the mountains, and on the way we go over this mountain, Caesar's Head, we always stop at Caesars Head State Park at the very top. It's this beautiful, gorgeous overlook that just looks out over all sorts of mountains and valleys and lakes and different things like that. But right next to the overlook is this little set of steps that goes down to an overlook below the top one, if that makes sense. And so when you go and you get on these steps, there's two slabs of rock beside you, two boulders, two parts of the mountain. And the further you go down, steps, the narrower it gets. And so when you get to the bottom, me, I have to turn sideways like this to get through it, to get out on the path, to walk down to the other overlook, to look out on the mountains and the valleys and the lakes and all the things that you see. It's, a, it's squeezing between the boulders and the mountains to get out onto the path. And that's essentially the exact picture that Jesus provides when he's talking about squeezing through a narrow gate to get on the right road here's the truth about jesus's call on us to come to the end of ourselves and turn to him it requires a little bit of narrowness and it requires a little bit of being squeezed the the narrowness of christianity is this we have to realize that we are sinful And then we have a problem that we can't fix and that apart from Christ, we are essentially bankrupt on our own. All the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to understand that we are spiritually bankrupt in order to begin our walk with Christ. And it's a place that Christ brings us to the narrowness of Christianity. Christianity is narrow and squeezes because we have to believe that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. That's narrow. It's narrow and it squeezes because we have to drop our own identity and identify with Christ instead. It's narrow and it squeezes because Jesus says in verse 14 that this road is difficult and hard and it's going to squeeze you when you walk with Christ. Identifying with Jesus is incredibly freeing once you do it. Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But it hurts when you have to squeeze through the tight space of admitting and realizing that you need to be saved and that you cannot save yourself. But once you walk through that narrow gate, you are adopted and accepted by the only person in the world whose opinion is really matters your identity is found not in how you live but in who you belong to your identity is not found not in your attempts at righteousness but in the righteousness of Christ so when Jesus gives us this picture of a narrow gate to walk through that picture is about being squeezed but it's about being identified with Christ stay with me on this okay we're getting there fruit Disease trees, stay with me. Let me read verses 15 through 23 again as well. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. I want you to understand that when Jesus is talking about good fruit and bad fruit, diseased fruit, I mean diseased trees and good trees, sheep and wolves in sheep's clothing, if we take the application all the way out, He's talking about people in the church, right? He's talking about people who know something about Him, something who... um, who have in some way been involved or, or know something about Christianity. In verse 15, the wolves in sheep clothing, these are people whose external repre- representation doesn't match their internal reality. I, I can't think about sheeps and wolves in the, the biblical picture here without thinking about the American Sniper movie. You guys know, remember the story there? The sheep and the wolves and the sheepdogs. Um, But essentially, when Jesus talks about wolves and sheep clothing, like I said, he's talking about people whose external representation doesn't match their internal reality. In verse 16 and 17, we see trees who bear fruit according to what they are. Their internal treeness, their internal identity, produces fruit according to what they are. Right outside of my bedroom window, a few years ago, we planted this flowering peach tree. Um, It's supposed to have pretty flowers on it every year. we planted it so the birds would come and, you know, build nests in the tree. And when we wake up in the morning, we could hear the little birds in the trees and things like that. It's an awesome tree. But this spring, I walked outside one day onto the back porch and I looked over and this flowering peach tree that has never produced much fruit had hundreds of peaches just growing all over it. Completely didn't expect it to happen. But it's impossible to miss the fact that it's a peach tree when it has peaches growing on it. Right? It's a peach tree. It produced peaches. In verses 21 through 23, we see people who acted externally as if they belonged to Christ, but internally, they did not. And so, what we have in this passage, the issues that we see essentially boil down to issues of internal realities versus external representations. Um, Paul David Tripp is a, a pastor and author whom uh, I, I, I really love to read his stuff, listen to his sermons. Um, he's a Christian counselor as well, just a really solid guy. And if you're not familiar with him, I would encourage you to look him up and read some of his stuff. But he refers to what we see going on here in this passage as what he calls externalism. And he says that externalism is a participation in the culture and activities of Christianity, yet it's a Christianity that does not engage the heart. It's when our identity was never truly rooted in Jesus, and so our hearts are not owned and ruled and grounded in Christ. Jesus intends that our faith should command every aspect of our life. It should challenge our deepest assumptions, Motivations, thoughts, feelings that should shape the way we live in our most private moments. It should command our most intimate thoughts. And there's a danger here for all of us. Because all of us are subject to reducing Christianity down to something external without letting our hearts be owned by Christ and by Christ alone. Here are some ways that Christianity presents itself in a very external fashion sometimes in the life of the church. Um, formalism is when we reduce Christianity down to a participation in the meetings and the ministry of the church. And we let that be what defines our Christianity. Legalism is when we reduce Christianity down to following a set of rules and wanting to make sure that we have a list that we can check off and say, I'm righteous because I do these things. Um, We can reduce Christianity down to an external place when we focus on theology and think that believing the right things and having enough theological knowledge is what defines a good Christian. Or perhaps it's some sort of activism or participation in some type of ministry maybe sometimes we reduce christianity down to meeting our felt needs that we just we need some relationships we need something and so our christianity becomes us trying to meet those needs or maybe we reduce christianity down to something very emotional some sort of spiritual need to have emotional um, experiences or whatever it may be. Th- these are dangers for all of us. They're dangerous for all of us. We, we all can end up going down one of those roads at some point if we're not careful. And there's other places this can play out in our lives as well. But the danger in externalism is this. It leaves the heart unchallenged. And in leaving the heart unchallenged, it omits the gospel of Jesus. Here's a gospel principle I want you to take away. Last week, I talked about being versus doing. This week, here's a gospel principle for you. Jesus means to undo you and rebuild you again in his image. Right? That's the gospel, right? Not not you, but Jesus. Not your work, the work of Jesus. Not your righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Not your identity, but the identity Jesus gives you as his child as part of his kingdom as a child of God not your identity but the identity that God provides look at verses 16 through 20 again with me if you will you will recognize them by their fruits are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles so every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus, over and over and over through the Gospels, you see him use this language of trees and fruits and vines. It's a common illustration. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the vines and abiding in him. Um, Luke Chapter 6 says some of the same things as Matthew chapter 5. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. It's a common illustration that Jesus uses over and over and over. Jesus says that a tree produces fruit according to what it is on the inside. Jesus says that a tree produces fruit according to what's internal to that tree, according to its inherent identity. And so how that plays out in our life, where we jump from trees in Matthew chapter 7 to some real world application for us is this, is that there's a consistency between what rules my heart and what shapes my behavior and produces fruit in my life. What rules my heart will present itself in my behavior. What rules my heart will determine what sort of fruit I produce. And what this means for us is that Jesus wants our heart before he wants our behavior. Because our hearts are the control systems for our thoughts and behaviors, and actions, and motivations. If our hearts are ruled by Jesus, then our lives will produce fruit that is consistent with the identity of the internal reality that we belong to Christ. Behavioral problems are never just problems of behavior. They're problems of the heart. Bad decisions are never just bad decisions. They are always problem problems. Problems of the heart. Sin manifested in our life is never just about sin. It's a problem of the heart. Hateful words are never just words. They are problems of the heart. External attempts to make ourselves right with Christ are problems of the heart. And so, when Jesus criticized the Pharisees, it wasn't because they had a theological problem or a behavioral problem or a moral problem. It's because they had a problem of the heart. It's because their internal identity was messed up. Their hearts were ruled by their own systems and their own behaviors and their own contrived ways of doing things. And so, I have to ask you does Christ have your heart? That's what we need to take away from this passage here. It's a scary passage. So does Christ have your heart? Does He own your motivations and your thoughts? Do you actually live for something bigger than yourself? Do the purposes of God and the glory of God rule you when you're at work, when you are at home, when you're on your computer... When you're on your cell phone, when you're in traffic, what you do with your paycheck and your money, are you producing fruit according to what you are? If we go all the way back to the beginning of the sermon, I gave you some examples of people who seem to have walked away from the faith. Here's where I think their problem originated, Right? Jesus never had their heart. They never found their identity in Christ. And even though it's Christ that does the calling, and Christ calls, them to, calls us to Himself and provides a way for us to be rightly related to Him, they never really came to the end of themselves, squeezed through that gate, recognized their need for a Savior, recognized their own sin, and that they couldn't do these things on their own. Their Christianity was external, not internal. Their identity was found in something other than Christ. And so when we look at this passage from Matthew chapter 7, there's way more for us to deal with here than I could possibly do in one sermon. But what we have to catch here, what we have to understand, is that when Jesus calls us to Himself... It requires us coming to the end of ourselves, recognizing our sin, recognizing our need for a Savior, recognizing that we can't do this on our own. We can't save ourselves. But it's also, this passage is also about us understanding that we have to belong to Christ, that our identity has to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. The difference between the good fruit and the bad fruit, the difference between the healthy tree and the diseased tree. The difference between those who spend an eternity with Christ and those who don't, it's about internal realities. It's about identities in Christ. It's about coming to Christ and to Christ alone. So as we come to the end of this this morning, here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I'm calling you to do. There's something that I want you to do as you walk away from this sermon and this church and this service this morning. It's this, I want you to find your identity in Christ and in Christ alone. I want you to find your identity in Christ and Christ alone. And so that requires me to ask the question right at the very beginning of that, do you have a relationship with Christ? Have you recognized your need for a savior? If you haven't, then I would invite you to do so this morning. Somebody can talk to you about what that means and what that looks like. But even beyond that, for those of us in this room who may, who, who do have a relationship with Christ already, um, we need to understand a couple of things. We have a new identity in Christ, and it's the gospel that saves us and provides our new identity. It's the gospel that defines our identity. And this new identity isn't just an identity unto a unto itself when christ gives us a new identity he sets us apart into a community of faith we call that the church and so we find our identity in christ and as we identify with christ god creates a group of people around us and as god creates that group of people he jointly puts all of us on mission in this new identity to lead people to jesus to lead people to jesus so that more people can find their identity in Christ and in Christ alone. Right here at Redemption, we talk a lot about gospel community mission. That's our purpose, gospel community mission. We want you to find your identity in Christ. Your identity is found as you turn to the gospel. God sets you apart in that community defined by the gospel and sets you on mission so that other people can find their identity in Christ as well. So find your identity in Christ. That's what I would call you to do. And when you find your identity in Christ, I would encourage you to continue to pursue keeping your identity in Christ. Pursue it. Work on it. Continue in pursuing that identity. Here at Redemption, we don't have a whole lot of programs, a a whole lot of places um, to plug in to do things. But what I think we try to do is provide ways through missional communities, uh, DNA groups, opportunities for service where we can jointly help one another pursue our identity in Christ. That's why missional communities exist, DNA groups exist. That's why we call you to serve with one another on mission so that together we can focus on Jesus, help one another to focus on Jesus and to find our identity in Christ and in Christ Alone. But even as we do those things, let me encourage you to keep a few things in mind. Um, number one, I would invite you to allow people who demonstrate good fruit to speak the gospel into your life. Not just someone who comes along and is engaging and seems to know a lot, but people who produce good fruit. Right? Jesus says that good fruit is an indication of an internal reality of being in a relationship with Him. So as you allow people to speak into your life, I would encourage you to allow people who produce good fruit to speak into your life. If they are not producing good fruit, they're going to sow in you seeds of doubt and condemnation and fear and things that are not gospel-oriented. So allow people who produce good fruit to speak into your life. Secondly, I would encourage you to constantly remind yourself of the gospel. Go to God's Word Study God's Word through a practical spiritual discipline of knowing God's Word and diving into it. Speak the gospel to yourself through God's Word on a regular basis. Pursue your identity in Christ by speaking the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself of what Scripture says about who you are and whose you are. Here's another way that you can pursue your identity in Christ it may seem counterintuitive, but I don't think it is. It's speak the gospel to others. And as much as you allow people who produce good fruit to speak into your life, and as much as you turn to God's word to speak the gospel to yourself, speak the gospel to others. If it's true that people who don't come to know Christ are going to spend an eternity apart from Christ in eternal torment and judgment like we read about, then it's imperative that we speak the gospel to those around us. We can't just embrace the gospel. We have to proclaim it. That's why the gospel is good news. It's narrow because it calls people to the end of themselves in repentance. And it's narrow because it's only through Jesus that we are accepted. But it's so freeing. And it's what the world around us needs to hear. So what am I calling you to do this morning? Find your identity in Christ. And number two, pursue your identity in Christ missional communities, DNA groups, serving together are opportunities for that to happen. Allowing people who, who produce good fruit to speak into our lives, speaking the gospel to ourselves from Scripture, speaking the gospel to others. Let's pursue our identity in Christ together. Everybody on board? It's easier said than done, right? Pursue your identity in Christ Let's go after it together. We're going to enter a time of response um, like we do every Sunday morning here at Redemption Church. And in our time of response, this is what's going to happen. The band's going to come back up here in just a second and continue to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to to worship through singing if that's where God has us. Uh, during During this time as well, you have an opportunity to sit where you are and pray and reflect on God's word and maybe what the Holy Spirit was speaking to you this morning. You have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back. Whereas a continued act of worship. You can give part of what um, God ultimately entrusts to you. Back to his work here on earth. Also during this time there will be a couple of people in the back. Who are, who are, who are um, there to pray with you. If there's something you want to pray about. I would also encourage you if you want to know more about what this means to find your identity in Christ, to know Christ, to have a relationship with Christ, Um, you can grab one of those people that's praying in the back as well. You can grab me or Ben or Brent or somebody and we'll be happy to have a conversation with you about what that means. Um, And finally, during this time, we'll celebrate communion as well. And so every Sunday here at Redemption, we do communion. And it's an opportunity for you to come up front, um, tear off some bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and, um, and when we do that, here's what we're doing. We tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. We are remembering what Christ has done for us. We're saying that Christ's blood was shed for us, that his body was broken for us. And we're remembering Christ's sacrificial act on our behalf. But also when we do this, by doing this, we're saying um, that we believe the gospel and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel is true. And so when we come to take communion, we're remembering what Christ has done for us. We're proclaiming to one another that it's true and that we believe it. And so if you're here this morning and God gives you the freedom to come and take communion, I would invite you to do so, whether you're a member of this church or not. But in doing so, keep in mind that what we're doing is we're saying, I believe the gospel and I'm remembering that Christ did something for me. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then um, we'll transition on into this time of response. God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be here this morning so far. God, thank you for the reminder from your word um, that you have provided a way for us to be rightly related to you. God, thank you that we can find your identity, find our identity in something worthwhile, something that lasts in Christ and in Christ alone. God, over the next few minutes here, as we continue to respond, as we continue to sing and pray and give and reflect, take communion, all the things that will happen over the next few minutes here. God, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would continue to lift Jesus high, that we might be drawn to you. God, I pray that we would We would put our faith in nothing other than you and you alone. So, God, please draw us to yourself during this time. Please continue to work in our hearts and minds. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.